welcome to episode 10 of Long Hair Do Care. Long hair because I do indeed have long hair and I care very much specifically about topics that fall under the broad yet niche umbrella of queer intersectional ecofeminism. And today the topic's going to be about hunting and the special guest is Eric Chabot. Hi Eric. Hey Georgie, thanks for having <laughs> me on the show today. So Eric is a hunter and uh, I'm excited to talk a little bit more about that because as a mostly vegetarian, pescatarian, uh, I do think hunting is important but we'll jump into that after we talk about how many cats I've interacted with this week. How many cats did you see? <laughs> I saw two. I see these cats a lot. It's Myra, Moira, gosh, sorry, Moira, Moira, and Dada. They're kind of like perma kittens. They're great. I love them. They're siblings. Did you see any cats this week? Just or... running across the road. Okay, so uh, no, like, petting? No petting, no snuggling. What a bummer for you. Wildlife that I did see this week was a rattlesnake! That's two weeks in a row. I saw a rattlesnake up Ferguson Canyon. I was hiking with AJ. Shout out to AJ. He's the one that did the intro music and was the first guest on this podcast. We were just looking at the waterfall up Ferguson, and I was walking towards this rock, and then because of thousands of years of evolution, I was just like, (gasps) and I almost fell backwards, and there was a little baby rattlesnake. Oh, cool. Did uh, he rattle at you? No, uh, we were far enough away. But, Sorry, um, I should, did they rattle at you? I don't, <laughs> want, to, I don't want to gender this, this, <laughs> this little snake. snake. Yeah. Yes, they did not, but I was still scared. And fun fact that you probably know about younger rattlesnakes is that when they bite you, it's probably worse than when an older snake bites you. Do you know why? Is it because they can't control the amount of venom they deliver with the bite? Yeah, they're immature, and so they overreact. Like a teenager. If you ever get bit by a baby rattlesnake, you're in more trouble. And oftentimes, adult rattlesnakes, when they bite you first, there's no venom. A warning bite. Oh, interesting. Yeah, because it takes a lot of effort for them to To produce produce venom. venom. Yeah. Side note, it's rattlesnake season here in the Wasatch right now. I've seen a few rattlesnakes in the last couple of weeks myself. It seems like they start popping out this time of year. Yeah. Any listeners... Keep your dogs on a leash when you're out hiking. And that being said, I didn't say the date. It's June 27th, 2001, uh, Sunday, because I like to record these on Sundays. And because then it's the end of the week and I can tell you how many Teslas I counted. And this week I counted 46. I didn't count any of the halves. What's the half rule? So there's Teslas that are awesome and they're great, and then there's electric cars that are still great, but they're not Teslas, so they just count as half a Tesla. Oh, okay. So I didn't, I didn't really look out for those, and 46 is a guess. I was on my way back from California, and I did see a bunch of them, so I baselined with 30, and then when I was in Salt Lake City, then I counted from there, because I was just on the road for so long, so I did a poor job, everybody, of counting Teslas. But I did do my best, and I'll do better in the future. So for the conscious content consumption of the week, I read for the first time poems by Mary Oliver. I fell in love. I was introduced to it by my friend Asha Flick. And Mary Oliver, she died in 2019, was born in 1935, 
Uh, Mary Oliver was an American poet who won the National Book Award and the Pulitzer Prize. And I used to think that Pulitzer Prize was Pulitzer Prize, and I didn't know why. Did they surprise people? Is that when a really young chicken lays its first egg? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> took me a long time to figure out that that's what it was. Pulitzer Prize. Um, her work is inspired by nature rather than the human world, stemming from her lifelong passion for solitary walks in the wild. Sound familiar? Basically, every male figure who's written about wilderness was glorified for this. And I've never even heard of Mary Oliver before, and she also likes solitary walks. In 2007, she was declared to be the country's best-selling poet, which makes sense because every time I read one of her poems, it makes me cry. In addition to that and how she kind of falls into the topics that I like to talk about, she was queer. She had a lifelong partner. I don't, I don't think they ever got married. And her partner's name was Molly Cook, and she died in 2005, which is sad to think about because that means... You know, if she died in 2005 and the Mary Oliver died in 2019, oh man, maybe that's why she's such a good poet. Who knows? But I highly recommend a poem that she wrote called Wild Geese. And the first line, I love it so much, is, you do not have to be good. How <laughs> the audacity to tell somebody that, it just feels really great. And I cried so many times reading that. If I read the poem to now, I'd probably cry again, and I don't think I'll do that right now, but excellent poetry. Highly recommend reading that. The other thing that I am reading right now is the Poisonwood Bible. This is from the back of the book. Poisonwood Bible is a story told by the wife and four daughters of Nathan Price, a fierce evangelical Baptist who takes his family and mission to the Belgian Congo. So he takes his family to the Congo in uh, 1959. He's a preacher. He's super pious, which is revealed as a huge character flaw. And the writing is so good. Barbara Kingsolver, she's the writer. It's from the perspectives of each one of the four daughters and the wife. And like they each have their distinctive own voice and the way that they interact with reality. I'm not all the way through it yet, but so far, so good. Beautifully written, and I just like that it's from all the different perspectives of the female characters. And uh, though, uh, though I think I would be interested in maybe reading like a side story from the dad's perspective, but we don't need to give him space. It sounds like he took up a lot of space <laughs> <laughs> in their lives. Anyways, yeah. do you have anything you'd want to share? Something fun that you've consumed that you think is worth highlighting? Well, I uh, I will just, one of my hunting partners is up in the Wasatch right now on a scouting trip and he's placing and checking trail cameras and he's spending the mornings and evenings glassing uh, from high points and looking for animals. Glassing? And yeah, so it means use, uh, searching for animals using glass or using optics. Oh, so we'll okay. So use binoculars or spotting scopes. Why wouldn't you just say scoping? Game. It's just the vernacular of, <laughs> of, of the of It's the just craft. a way to tell people yeah. that you know what you're talking you're about. You're not the So he's been seeing a bunch of stuff. He's been seeing a bunch of young or uh, developing bucks and, and does for mule deer and, and bulls and cows for elk. This time of year, the males of both of those species, their antlers are in velvet, which means they're growing. A lot of folks 
may not know this, but deer and elk actually grow a new set of antlers every single year. That's the difference between horns and antlers. Horns, an animal grows once in its uh. life. Antlers grow every year and they get reshed. So I guess I knew that, but I never really thought about yeah. like that's why they're called different things. Yeah, so if you go around in the springtime, if you find places where the animals like to spend the winter and the early spring, you can find shed antlers yeah. Uh, from the, the males of, of deer and elk, and, and it's a really popular off-season activity for hunters. I'm trying to think of an animal that has two horns that aren't antlers. Uh, a goat or a sheep. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, because they don't shed they those. They don't shed those. Yeah, they keep them for their whole life. But they're all undulates? Is that undulates. right? Yeah, undulates, yeah. Undulates. <laughs> I yeah. love that word. I love throwing it out, and then people look at me like I made up a mythical creature, and I'm like, nope, it's just a... Yeah. Is that like a species or is that a oh, just man. like a kingdom or guess. something? Um, <laughs> I don't know what it is, but I love the it's word. It's a taxonomic grouping of animals. Uh, I don't know what level <laughs> it's at. Even more specifically, deer and elk are cervids. So cervids. Cervids tend to have those drop away headgear. And there's a lot of evolutionary reasons why people think they may have developed that um, because it costs them a lot of, yeah, of energy. energy to grow them. I mean, elk will just grow these massive i wonder if there's like a a specific plant they like to eat for all that calcium right because it has to be calcium it's bone right it is yeah and and that's one reason why sometimes so previously to this year in utah using salt or bait as an attractant for big game animals was legal this year it's no longer legal to do that why Um, it changes the nature of hunting as a sport and as an activity oh. what does that have to do with their antlers sorry oh it's a source of calcium oh. that's why they like it you know a Got lot of the it. salt blocks that you can buy uh will have a, like a high calcium content and that mm. helps to attract animals right. to them does and cow elk like it too so everyone likes salt Cool. Well, we've uh, basically started talking about hunting. Yeah. Real quick before we dive deeper into it, maybe share uh, your background sure. because you work in conservation. You've worked for environmental nonprofits like I have, and then we can jump into the, the topic of yeah, hunting. Yeah, I do. And I actually, I'll tell you a little bit about my, my background and I can even segue into hunting for you. Um, <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> so... I work as a biologist for a nonprofit conservation organization called Bird Conservancy of the Rockies. They're based in Fort Collins, Colorado. Previously to that, I worked for several years for Hawkwatch International, another bird conservation nonprofit based here in Salt Lake City. And as a biologist, I would attend conferences where I'd listen to presentations of research and network with other scientists and present uh, my own results for stuff that I was working on. And I was at a, a wildlife society meeting here in the state of Utah, and, and because there's such a strong connection between hunting and conservation in that a lot of the funding for conservation projects actually comes from hunters, which we'll get to later. One of the, uh, there was a scholarship raffle that was going on at this scientific conference, and I thought, oh, well, I'll just, I'll put in some money and contribute to the scholarship and help out, you know, a new young biologist and I ended up winning the winning the raffle, which was for uh, a hunting rifle, and that was the beginning of my path into hunting. That was a few years ago. Um, I've hunted for only two years now, so I don't want to claim to be any kind of expert. But <laughs> I've spent a lot of time in the field. I've read a lot about the it. field, as in hunting, or the field yeah, as yeah, in yeah, yeah. your field other hunter, job. Like, okay, with yeah, with the intention. Because you also do field work sure, for your job. Sure, right, and and I think that. A biological awareness and, and lens for looking at the natural world 
has helped me to develop as a hunter, but I, I don't want to claim to be any kind of expert. Let that be clear to our <laughs> listeners. However, I do think I've come to understand the experience and it's really provided me a lot and, and much more than I thought that it would when I first started getting involved with it. So where would you like to start? Mm, um, what I think is important to highlight is why hunting is good for conservation. The points that I do want to hit is the funding bit because I, sure. I worked for the division of natural resources at a fish hatchery in Waweep, Waweep State Fish Hatchery in Big Water, Utah. And it was totally weird to me, but uh, I did learn more, not enough, and maybe I didn't retain all the information about how funding for managing these resources does come from tags. Or I don't, I, I... Yeah, so a lot of the Division of Wildlife's funding here in Utah comes from license and permit sales. So permits, a.k.a. tags, they call it a tag because when you buy a permit to, 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 shoot, hunt, an to shoot an animal, it contains like a physical tag that you place on the animal after you kill it. So that if a game warden were to walk up, he would be able to identify that that animal was, was taken legally. So the other way that hunting funds conservation is with Pittman-Robertson funds. So every time that I go... Pittman... Pittman-Robertson Act, it's a, it's a federal piece of legislation that taxes the sales of weapons and ammunition. Oh. And so specifically hunting stuff or all of it? All of it. That makes me happy to hear yeah. even though I have my own opinions on guns. <laughs> it's, it's, it is a bit ironic that like as a hunter through Pittman Robertson funding, I do a lot less for conservation than the Boogaloo nutjob who shoots his AR-15 like a thousand rounds a week. He's just buying all this ammo. And paying all these taxes to support that end up going to conservation. So, and I buy, you know, a couple boxes of, of shells a year to practice for the season and then hopefully only end up making one actual shot Yeah. on a big game animal. I guess, yeah, you practice shoot. And I do, that's yeah. That's how you would use some of the ammunition. Yeah, and, and just to kind of take that off on a little tangent, there's a lot of variation and it's in people's ethics when it comes to hunting and people's motivations for it. But a big part of hunting ethics is being proficient with your weapon. Yeah, um, because so if that, you have a shitty shot and you just hurt the animal, yeah. then one, you have to track them. Two, they're in pain. Yeah, and, and, and it, no hunter likes that. No. no one feels good about it. You just want it to be like one shot, boom, had a happy life, yeah. and then then suddenly not, and that's it. <laughs> yeah, they have one bad day, and that's the way that I kind of justify it in my mind. Um, Maybe like five bad minutes. Or hopefully less. Hopefully less. Yeah. yeah. Um, Day makes it seem like a whole suffer fest. Sure. Which might happen if you have a shitty shot. If you made a bad shot, yeah. <laughs> you know, if you make an ethical shot to be a little bit gruesome about it, the death that that animal has, I would personally prefer over any other death that they'll receive in the wild, whether that be from starvation, freezing to death. Old age. Being torn apart by a mountain lion. <laughs> Those are the alternatives. Yeah. <laughs> so, yes. I would prefer being shot once in the head than any of those. Well, maybe not old age. Let's go, let's change the topic here. We kind of went in a little bit of a dark direction. We can be a little dark. Well, and I think it's important to like consider the, I'm sure your listeners will be interested in the ethics of this activity. I mean, it's, it's a complicated activity. and, And to me, like it's a craft. It has long traditions that are built into it. It's also a sport. And to certain people, there's more of a sport aspect to it. It is competitive with other hunters because there's a limited number of wildlife out there. And every single time you go out, if they see you, they're going to move further away from the road. Yeah. So there's there's a lot of different angles about it. Angles, pun intended. 
fisherman. I don't oh, know. Yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah, I totally. It was a stretch. It was a stretch. That's great. So, for me personally, my interest in hunting was initially based on finding a way to have a little bit more sustainable, a little bit more ethical source of meat in my yes. diet. Unfortunately, with maybe I'm just not that good of a hunter, but it's really if I were to spend all the money, you know, take all the money that I spent on on hunting equipment and trips to go scouting in my vehicle and trips for the actual hunt and then licenses and and everything like that, if I added all that money up, I could buy a lot of really nice farm to table meat, yeah. right? Like so it's it's a thing that I initially was interested in because because it's more sustainable. It's more sustainable. It's a little more ethical. These animals are inhabiting environments yeah. that they've lived in for millennia. And if I can interject, sure. you eat meat. I do. I personally believe if you're going to eat meat, this is the best way to do it. It would be really cool somehow if the food system, the meat industry, were more geared towards this type of meat eating, though I know we wouldn't want to hunt all these animals to extinction, which I'm sure would be possible if we decided to get rid of all the cows. Granted, I think that we should just get rid of all the cows for a number of reasons, mostly that they degrade the environment that they're in. Any stream beds they ruin the banks of, which destroys the ecology of the waterways. And so thinking about why it's more sustainable. We've said that, yes, it is more sustainable, but not really why. Beef that we produce, that we mass produce, we use a lot of hormones to do it. The waste that comes from that is super toxic. The concentration of the waste is horrible. A lot of livestock are fed on corn. Yeah, every step of the way of that process to produce beef commercially, the way that it's regularly done in the United States, is unsustainable. That compared to killing one elk or deer, I guess I don't know what you hunt. I mostly hunt deer and elk. Um, okay. I'll pursue, I'll see, I'll take grouse opportunistically as well, but mostly I'm a, a deer and elk hunter. Yeah. When you just hearing about what you were saying with the livestock industry, I mean, hunting's the opposite of that because hunting is the tool that natural resource managers use to manage wildlife populations. Yeah. So... Which also is directly related to managing wild places and wilderness because you don't want to have an overpopulation. Right. If there's overpopulation, then there's starvation, there's disease, there's exactly. overeating. It, yeah. Yeah, habitats can be degraded. And unfortunately, a lot of, in my opinion, and I wish I could cite some research to back this up, but in my opinion, one of the limiting factors for, for big game animals populations here in Utah is winter range habitat. So animals will spend the spring and the summers up in lush mountains, and then when the mountains get full of snow, they'll come down to lower elevations and they'll spend more time in plains and and foothill type areas. And those are the areas that are most subject to development. And that's where the most agriculture is. And so it's where they come into conflict with humans. It's also where the roads are, where they get hit by cars. And so by removing animals from the population, we're preventing them from having these population crashes during the harsh winters when that's really the hardest time for them anyway. And there's a lot of winter mortality for for deer and elk. Now that their winter range habitat is degraded and, and it's been used by humans for other things and it's just not available to them anymore, 
One argument that I know I've had a lot of mm. friends, whether they're vegan or meat eaters, they're like, we should just let nature take its course and do its thing. Something that I've heard, especially when I worked at that fish hatchery and was managing fish populations. We, we can't just, we, I guess, need to manage them because we're far beyond the point of, I don't know. We've like We've modified already... the environment so much. In, uh, as a species that I think we have an obligation to help these populations and these species to exist in a sustainable way because the other ways that we've already modified the environment make it really hard for them to survive yeah. and to, do, to thrive. And so hunting is part of that population management that allows them to thrive. That's what I was trying I to think, articulate. So yeah, thank you for I, saying it more eloquently. Yeah, I think that, that let's, let nature take its course is a little bit of an overly simplistic yeah. view. And I think it negates the consequences of the massive landscape change that we as humans yeah, have done have and continue to do. Yeah, and if we lived in a hunter-gatherer style and we had a very low human population density on the landscape, then that would be a great way to do it. But we just don't. Yeah. So one of the ways that wildlife are managed is through hunting um, and sustainable harvest. The other reason to hunt is that it's a traditional activity that human beings have done for thousands and thousands of years, as long as we've existed as a species. And it's, (laughs) it's kind of funny that they put this in the Utah state constitution, but it's, it's a constitutional right now. Oh, I didn't know. Now you say now, did that change recently? The last, uh, the last ballot. They, they added it. When? Uh, the last election, 2020. Oh. Yeah. Um, I guess I remember that. And I couldn't remember, you know, uh, being part of different environmental nonprofit organizations, including Great Salt Lake Audubon, National yeah. Audubon, Utah Audubon Council. Those are all bird-related groups. I can't remember if those groups were supportive of that constitution. <laughs> you know, it might not have been, it might not have seemed really relevant to them. And to be honest, like even as a hunter, I don't really see that amendment as necessary at all. Like the right to hunt and fish and the management of wild populations through hunting, I don't think will ever be threatened. But there is a lot of fear and misunderstanding within the hunting community of progressives in general and of people they see as anti-gun or anti-hunting. Yeah. And well, really... I also think there's a lot of misunderstanding about hunting as it is. That's one reason why I wanted to talk about it, because sure. though I don't eat meat, I sometimes eat fish sparingly. I am a huge supporter of hunting for the many reasons that we've talked about so far, but there's just so much misunderstanding of people who are like, oh, that's so horrible. It's like, well, what might be more horrible is where you get your milk from. Sure, and I don't want to. I don't want to sugarcoat hunters, and I don't certainly. I certainly don't speak for all hunters, and I will say that there is a segment of the hunting public that enjoys killing, yeah. and that doesn't have motivations around it that I agree with. But I think it's unfair to paint hunters with a broad brush, and yeah. I think that those people are a small minority, to be honest. Most of the hunters that I've interacted with when I've been out in the field or at the range or whatever are full of respect for the for their prey mm-hmm. and hunt not necessarily for killing or for the sport of that, but for spending time outdoors, spending time with yeah. their family. That was another thing that you've talked about. Why you yeah. like it is because, I mean, when you've told me or described to me your hunting experiences... 
You go out hiking all day long just to see where the animals are. Yeah, totally. You're in the bat country bringing all your stuff and it's a full day thing. It sounds like you've been alone and with people out there. You're connecting with nature and a lot of folks who like to hunt do like to connect to nature and that's part of the value system. Maybe not for everybody. Maybe not everybody fits in that box. I think if you don't like connecting with nature, if, if it's if it's not something that you enjoy as a hunter, you don't last very long doing it because, like Georgie said, it's it's a lot of work, and especially here in the Wasatch, close to um, an Let's urban see. area where so many people live, there's a lot of hunters, there's a lot of hunting pressure, which means that the animals are very skittish, and so in order to find places where they are, you have to go really far away from road. The longest day that I had last year was probably about a 16-mile hiking day. And that was a day where I went in, hunted all day, and then came back out the same day. Um, Typically, I'll go in to the spots that I like. It'll be a three-ish hour hike into the area. And And that's like what I do, but I just don't take a gun. (laughs) Sure, yeah. And you're probably not going on trails. No, and and I will take trails to access certain areas, but typically I'm looking to avoid hiking trails and and areas where I'm going to run into other people. Because deer are scared of people. Yeah. (laughs) So that makes sense. The other interesting thing is just to kind of compare hunting with hiking a little bit, um, because I've always hiked and been outside in nature. I like to, I like other you know, adventure sports, but when you're hiking, you're on the trail, you're connecting with your friends, you're looking at the landscape, you're, you're chatting, maybe you have a dog with you, you're going along, you're making noises. Typically wildlife will hear you, hear you coming or smell you Mm -hmm. a long time before you see them. And so maybe you'll see something, but the next time I'm going to, I'm going to give your listeners uh, a little bit of an assignment, a little bit of homework. (laughs) The next time you're out hiking, spend 10 minutes sitting in one place, go away from a trail, doesn't have to be far, spend 10 minutes sitting in one place and listening. When was the last time you did that? I never did that when I was just a hiker. <laughs> I had no motivation for that. I but- think I've always enjoyed that, but... I also like to go out birding, so that's sure. a little different. In a yeah. way, that is hunting, but it's hunting for visuals, not for meat. Yeah, so. and, and I think as, I don't know, I, probably in my hunting career as as I progress and as I build up a, hopefully a big stash of meat in my freezer, <laughs> um, I hope someday that I'll switch from a weapon to a camera. It'll still allow me to have the same type of experiences that I'm having where I'm, yeah. I'm focusing on where animals are and then trying to find well, them. Well, you'd still want that as a source of meat for them. you, right? Unless you're saying that you would then no longer eat meat. No, but... no, no. I, I think the goal is that I'm going to have a lot of meat. Oh, so much meat that you're <laughs> like, oh, it's not worth paying for a tag because right. my meat fridge is so full. <laughs> well, it's, that's not the case right now. Remember, I'm, I'm not an expert hunter. Yeah. And, but the, the experiences that I've had through it are, are have been incredible, like finding these dank, north-facing, wet gullies on the mountainside, and you sneak down into them. and Just and to be clear, did you say dank because you were describing the area, or because you think it's super cool? Oh, no, no, no. They're, like, literally dank. Okay. They're, like, <laughs> moist, and, like, they stink <laughs> like elk. In the middle, there'll be a spring or something, and, and the spring is all pawed up into a wallow where the bull elk will roll in the mud and... and Pot up into a wallow. Yeah, they pot up. That's quite the sentence. Oh, paw. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They'll use their hoofs to like dig it out and then 
they'll pee in it and get their scent in it and then they'll roll around in the mud to get the nice pee mud on their bodies. And <laughs> so then, funny. And then you'll you'll look at the trees around the wallow and you'll see mud like five feet up off the ground where the bulls all rub like, their scent up against the trees and scratch themselves on there. Oh, you'll see like tree okay. branches that are just shredded with all the bark taken off by the bulls rubbing their antlers. And it's, it's I always kind of thought stuff. that was really cool to see. Yeah. I never thought about why mud was up so high but that makes sense it's it's crazy like some of the behaviors that i've that i've gotten to see um and just the times of day like every single time that i went out hunting last year i saw something cool i didn't always see an animal that was my target species i didn't always come close to to harvesting one but i always saw something cool i think the coolest was i I got to see a golden eagle try to attack a uh, mule deer fawn. Oh, I was watching whoa. from really far away through oh, a spot. Poor little scope. baby yeah. deer. That's more than yeah, I'm sure it was cool. Yeah, I saw these group of mule deer. Ambitious gather. eagle. Yeah, super ambitious. Was so, it an extra large eagle, like one from Lord of the Rings, or just a normal one? A normal golden eagle. Which yep. They definitely are, are pretty large animals. <laughs> but I want to I wanna make a little caveat or a little side tangent here about the word harvest that I've used a few times. Yeah, you've used the word sustainable harvest, and I actually did want you to... So it's it's sustainable because the permits to to take an animal's life, to remove them from the population, are allocated by the Division of Wildlife based on their studies of the population and of the resources that are available. So they try to maintain the herd at a certain density on the landscape that can be sustained over time based on you know the resources available. And I personally like the word harvest. I've run into people who think, oh, that's euphemistic because you're killing. And I'm not trying to shy away from the, fact the that taking it is, of life because yeah. it's a serious thing. It's a really important thing not to minimize. But I think harvest is an important word to use. And I like it because it signifies that what I'm doing is not about domination or yeah. getting a trophy or well, and anything like, like that. Actually thinking about when you kill the animal, then you have to harvest the meat from that animal. It's a lot and it's of work. a lot of work. <laughs> yeah. And my dad, he was a big hunter and I told him one year, I'd go with you. Um, he's like, oh, well, maybe put in for some tags. Then I thought about it. I'm so squeamish. <laughs> With fish, even, it's hard for yeah. me. And then a you know, full animal. I'm sure when you're in there, it's really cool and maybe beautiful. And there's its own skill and appreciation for that life as you're doing it. And again, another reason why I think that is a way better method to eat meat versus grocery store hamburger wrapped in plastic. Yeah, there's nothing alienated about consuming venison or elk meat that yeah. you harvested. Does it's, does elk have a fun name like venison? I think it's just called elk. Mm. <laughs> okay. Real quick, my dad really likes jokes. You probably can already guess the punchline, but what does Santa call his reindeer that can't fly? Venison. Venison. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> he really likes the joke. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, hunting's been an incredible experience. I got into it because I wanted meat. I quickly realized it was not worth it just for the meat, but it's really worth it for these incredible experiences, connecting with wildlife, thinking like an animal to try to figure out where you can find them and how yeah. to not the disrupt experience. their behavior while you're getting close. The whole experience is, is incredible. I will say it is an overwhelmingly male activity of all the hunters I interacted with. I think there were two women and both of them were with a man. 
Yeah. So hunting yeah, that's doesn't interesting. pass the Bechtel test. <laughs> I mean, it could. They were, and they were not. That was they were not together. They were like yeah. months apart. I ran into a daughter with her father and a couple that appeared to be romantic partners. Yeah, that's interesting. I would love to see or hear more about hunting from a female perspective. We could guess as to why it's so male-dominated, but I would say probably the leading one is, like for many professions, is that once it is so male-dominated, I am not keen on going into a profession where I'm going to be surrounded by men who are competitive. That's always going to be a pretty big factor. That's why I didn't want to keep working for the... um, Division of Natural Resources, the DNR, because it was just dudes. And honestly, all all these dudes wanted to talk about was hunting and fishing. And I would just stand around because there was a lot of standing around that we did while waiting for something or camping overnight. And it was just like, this kind of sucks. I don't know what they're talking about. So it is a pretty male-dominated activity. And I think when you're listening to those conversations that you can't participate in, like that makes total sense. However, I want to encourage any female listeners of this podcast that are interested in hunting to pursue it on your own. And that's challenging to do. And that's something that I had to do. I didn't grow up with hunting. A lot of the hunters that I talked to were taught by their fathers. And it just is this male-dominated world. Uh, However, when you're actually doing the activity, you really don't see other hunters much at all. You're pretty much out there having your own experience you will have to go out there and seek it out as someone that maybe isn't as connected with it as the good old boys that yeah. grew up with it. Um, but it's available to you, and the woods are not going to exclude you. The woods are not going to yeah. treat you any different That's than they would That's one nice man. thing about nature. Yeah. No matter what gender you are, nature's there for you. Yeah. I can't wait to see all the gender fluid and femmes and females out there They'd probably look really dope. Hunters kind of have a cool aesthetic on their own. Imagine that with someone that's pink hair, half their head shaved, they got their nose ring, they got their gun, and they're like, I'm going to go connect with nature and eat meat that I sustainably harvested. That person's going to be really cool. I hope that person exists now, and I can't wait till there are more of them. Yeah, and I think that it is a weird male-dominated, politically conservative activity, or at least that's what the majority of hunters are. Mm-hmm. But if you're interested in hunting, you're never going to interact with those people when you're actually out there doing it. Yeah. I think you'd be surprised. Some of the people, I guarantee a lot of these dudes that I'm running into out there didn't vote for Hillary, you know. Yeah. And, but yet, like, when I meet them, we connect about something. We can we can talk about, you know. Um, you can talk about the, the nature, yeah. And we wildlife. share this thing. And, and politics aren't really part of it and partly that's you know i have the privilege of my politics not appearing different from theirs like yeah, i pass as pass. Like everyone assumes since most of them are conservative they just assume that i am too i had a really interesting interaction with one guy after i had just shot a deer he asked me what bullets i was using and i said oh i'm using this lead for uh, this is something i did want to talk about yeah. with you today is yeah. uh lead bullet so please continue so, on so i shoot lead free ammunition because when you shoot an animal you typically leave a lot of that animal in the field because yeah, you're just taking the meat you're just taking the meat plus backpacking the whole animal would it, suck it and then really two it's better to leave it where it was going to die anyways scavengers yeah And so when you do that, when you shoot an animal with a lead bullet, those lead fragments will end up in the pile of non-usable animal material that you leave behind. 
and they'll be ingested by scavengers and they can cause cause lead poisoning, especially in, in birds of prey. And so a lot of places, lead shot is actually being banned. And so I told this guy that I was using this non-lead ammunition and he was surprised by that. He was like, oh really? Like, I thought that was just a ploy for the anti-gun people to like slowly erode our gun rights away. You <laughs> and know? you're like, no, and it's like, actually no, it's good for thing. the whole ecosystem. Yeah, and I mean, it's I was clearly not an anti-hunter. I was clearly not this person that's trying to do like, yeah you're clearly hunting <laughs> I just kill the deer you know? and so it's it's like oh you know hopefully that changes perspective on this yeah. just a little bit and and honestly like it's really easy in in modern life to be in a bubble and to only be around people that are just like you so yeah it's a cool yeah. opportunity to connect with other people that are maybe a little bit different politically yeah. and maybe the politics aren't that important when you're out there yeah. Just to go back really quick to lead bullets or non-lead bullets that you use, something that I've learned a lot about because I work with Great Salt Lake Audubon is people will go out and shoot clay pigeons oh, out sure. around Great Salt Lake. So there's lead everywhere. And I know that a lot of people, when they go and they find dead eagles or dead scavengers, they'll find lead in their system, high levels of lead in their system, which we shouldn't eat lead. They shouldn't eat lead. We don't want that in the environment. So if you do go out and shoot just to shoot, don't have those lead bullets. <laughs> it's not it's, great. They're actually all lead ammunitions against along California now. That's because yeah. California is so great. <laughs> I love California. Well, was but, there anything else that you wanted to, to Yeah, the last thing that I wanted to ask is, if there's somebody who's interested in getting into hunting, how how would they go about doing that? Where would they put in for a permit? How much would it even cost? What does that look like? Sure. I mean, just like any activity, there's a lot of, there's sort of like a hunting industrial complex that makes you think you need a lot of expensive gear. <laughs> and some of that stuff can be really helpful. I would say if you're going to be doing Western big game hunting. What does that mean? So deer and elk. Okay. Or antelope. A great way to get into hunting is, is small game hunting, actually. You can get a small caliber rifle that's relatively low recoil and pleasant to shoot. Um, I don't know what recoil means. Uh, recoil is like the pers- the impact of the rifle hitting your body as you pull the trigger because it's oh, like a yeah, physical yeah. reaction to the bullet, um, uh, leaving the gun, and it kicks back into your shoulder. <laughs> yeah. So I would say I'd say you need, you need a weapon, and you need to do a hunter safety course. So How order- much does that stuff... It's, it's not super expensive. I want to say it's like 35 or 40 bucks. And then the rifle? A, a small caliber. I don't want to like mislead people. A small caliber, like a 22 that you would use to hunt small game, you know, rabbits, squirrels, things like that. Or a shotgun. You could get as for as cheap as like $200 if you wanted to get a used one. Okay. <laughs> um, and of course you can spend up to, you know, probably many, like many, thousands, many thousands yeah. of dollars. The other thing that you might want to get is binoculars. Like yeah. Binoculars. That makes sense. Some comfortable boots that you can hike around in. All right. So you're like, okay, I'm going to do this. So you do the little safety Hunter course. Hunter safety orientation, yeah. Hunter safety orientation. And you look that up on the DNR's yeah, the Divis- website? Division of Wildlife, um, Utah Division of Wildlife Resources will have information about that on their website. Um, you can sign up. You do have to do an in-person um, safety course as well, which basically covers firearm safety. Um, which is a great thing to be able to know yeah. uh, anyway. Just well, that's when so you buy the firearm, the right? You have to do that. Uh, no, you don't actually need to have a gun. They'll, they have guns there that you can use. Okay. For your, you have to do a shooting test, but it's, you don't actually have to shoot very accurately at all. Um, <laughs> you just, you basically have to like 
hit the target, which is very at a very short range. Yeah. Um, so, and you have to demonstrate safe gun handling. So orientation, this safety test, you get the gun and then put in for a permit. Yeah, so I, I, anything um, that or you... Or a tag. Yeah, I don't know the difference. A permit is, is a tag. Okay. Um, they're synonymous. The permit has like a little tag associated with it. There's animals you can hunt without without tags. I'll, I don't want to misquote any regulations from the state of Utah, but typically wildlife will be managed by your state agency. So if you're not in Utah... Yeah, there's Fish and Game fish and in game, Colorado. DNR, yeah. I think it's Colorado Parks and Wildlife manages okay. it over there. There's different agencies. There's analogous agencies in all the different states, and they can give you more information specifically about hunting opportunities in your area. But small game is a great place to start. Birds are a great place to start. Just because those, you don't have to like do this. They typically have much longer season. Um, yeah. Their animals are more abundant, so you can find them more easily. And, and you can kind of get a, a taste for it and see if you like it before you go and buy like a big game rifle and you put in for this lottery and then you win your tag and you're like, okay, great. Now what? A great informative podcast that you can, that I've used to learn about hunting is called Cutting the Distance, and it's produced by Meat Eater. Warren is a great source of information, and a lot of the stuff that Meat Eater puts out is great. Meat Eater is another podcast? They're like a media company. They have a Netflix show, and oh, okay. they have like a, a podcast. Oh, there you go. There's your conscious content consumption right yeah, there. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't want to hype it because I don't know how conscious they are. Um, oh, they well. definitely do have a good perspective. Well, maybe not them they're... being conscious, but us being conscious when we consume it. Sure, yeah, the... totally. And, and, they're, and they're oriented towards harvest and using the meat and hunting as a way to connect with food and to connect with the environment rather than as you know, yeah. trophy hunting or sport killing yeah. or whatever. So. And that's a whole other thing we could talk about another day is trophy hunting. I think unless you have anything left to share about your experience hunting or why you like it. I think we pretty well covered it. Thanks for having me on the show. And and it's it's nice to have the opportunity to talk about something that I really love so much. Yeah. Well, thank you. Hope you all enjoyed listening about hunting. Thanks to AJ for the intro music. And as my dad always says, use your head and be clever. Bye, everyone.